started our series on Micah 6 8. We'll wrap it up next week, and then we'll be moving into the Advent season. So last week we talked about justice, but let's go ahead and read our passage of Scripture. If uh, um, I'm sorry, we'll get to that in a minute. I don't want to mess up the computer people, and I realize I put it lower down, so let me back up a little bit. Um, what we are doing in this with this passage is we're, we're taking extended time to meditate on this passage, to share it in kind of our living room setting so that you can all be part of the discussion and you can have discussions beyond just what we talk about this morning. But we really want to take this to heart, even so much so that we're allowing this passage to kind of drive the language of our mission statement as we tweak that just a little bit because we feel compelled to really align ourselves with the heart of God that's revealed here in this passage for this season. I, for one, am praying that our church and the church at large would have a revival of justice, kindness, and humility. I am convinced that that is the way forward for the evangelical church. If we are going to have relevance in the next 50 to the 100 years, if our grandchildren are still going to want to call themselves evangelicals, it will be because we recognize somewhere along in our movement around uh, 2020 during uh, the pandemic and so forth when the world was crazy, that there were some things we needed to look, look at and the priorities that we needed to revisit. And the truth of the matter is, is I am convinced that a revival of justice, kindness, and humility is what is absolutely necessary for every evangelical church to thrive in the years ahead. If we do not learn what it means to do justice and practice kindness as those who are in Christ, then we will lose any influence or authority with which we may speak to, future, to the future generations of the church. And I made the statement last week, I'm going to make it again this week. What we are looking for, yearning for, is a return to a biblical vision of conversion to Christ, which consists of being born again into the world of God's kingdom, which consists in a gradual rethinking of our entire value system as not simply as we mature and not simply as we learn more. It's something that goes deeper than that. The growth happens as we learn to live more in uh, alignment with the new life that we've been given in our heart and in our soul. The reason why it's gradual is because it takes a long time for us to learn to trust that we can really trust and live from the mind of Christ in here and the presence of Christ in here. We, we are not in a culture or society that values that kind of wisdom. We like objective wisdom that we can read about in books and those sorts of things, and that has its place. But beyond that, there's an also a wisdom that bypasses the left side of the brain and thrives on the right side of the brain, and that touches deep places of inspiration. We already have the mind of Christ. What happens in our so-called maturity isn't that we're becoming better people, but we're becoming people who are learning how to live out of the beautiful, redeemed life that you've been given right in the center of your soul. So as we progress in that, it begins to change our value system. And this renewal of thinking results in a complete transformation of all our relationships family, friends, neighbors, and even our enemies. And one of the things I'm going to encourage you to do is that as you think about your life and as we reflect upon our spiritual health and we reflect upon our spiritual growth, we tend to measurement in things like, okay, I have better theology than I had maybe 10 years ago, or I'm a little clearer on doctrine than I was a few years ago. I'm more disciplined to read my Bible. 
than I was a few years ago. And all of these things, again, create a great internal infrastructure for you to grow. I'm not taking away from that, but what I would encourage you to do is ultimately, you want to reflect upon your life and you want to determine whether or not your life is being successful based on the quality of the relationships around you. Now, some of us, because of temperament or because of vocation, we may have a greater number of relationships around us. I'm talking about that close circle of relationships that we all have. Look to those relationships. Are you being transformed in the way you show up in those relationships? Because if we are, that transformation won't remain private. It will go public. But we, doesn't, But what we've done before is we go public through programs without establishing the reality in our private lives. And that is why we begin to cultivate hypocrisy. That is why sometimes our children are confused about faith because they may see their, uh, us acting one way in public and differently when we're at home, and that's very confusing for them. So what we do is, we're not, I'm not saying we don't go out, but what I'm saying is we make sure we're going out, not an obligation, but from the impulse of love because we know the spirit of Christ in us is going out and we're going with him. That's why we go out because we've cultivated that in private. Social transformation is the public fruit, fruit of private transformation. Now then, to our good computer man, Micah 6.8. He has told you, old man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? This is the text we looked at last week, and we, we hinted at this last week. I don't know how clearly I communicated it. But, of course, we want to read the scripture of his story, their story, and then our story, my story. And we really want to get to the our story, my story part. So just a few minutes, what I want to do is I just want to take a moment to meditate on this passage within its Old Covenant context, and then we think about, okay, how does the New Covenant people of God reflect the principle that's here in this without turning it into a legalistic commandment that we recognize that's, it's not given as simply a command. This is a vision for what the people of God could look like because this is a vision of the reality that exists in the heart of God. He is a God who acts in accordance with justice and with kindness. So let's take a look. Last week we looked at justice. Next week we're going to look at humility. Today we're going to look at kindness. Kindness, which I believe is the revival that we so desperately need, not just as Christians and not just as Americans, but as the family of the human race. We desperately need to elevate the value of the virtue of kindness. This verse is simply a summary of how God calls us to live. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly. To walk humbly, and, and as we said last week, these in some ways are one idea, not three separate ideas. In that the way that we walk humbly with our God is by doing justice and loving kindness. To walk humbly with God is to know him intimately and to be attentive to what he desires and what he loves. And what is that? Well, our text tells us, do justice, love kindness, or love mercy. We'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. Um, uh, the term for kindness or mercy that we're going to look at this morning, anybody remember the term for justice that we looked at last week? Oh, very good. Thank you, whoever was over there. And those of you who whispered too timidly for me to hear. Uh, that's right, mishpat. 
This one is the word that's translated kindness in our translation. It depends on what translation you're reading from. You may see it as interpreted uh, as, as translated as uh, kindness or as mercy or as compassion or even as faithfulness. Uh, but it's the Hebrew term um, hesed or kesed, depending on how it's spelled, because sometimes it doesn't have the C with it. Um, and I don't know why that is, but I'm sure that a Hebrew scholar on the Google would be able to satisfy your curiosity. Uh, the term for mercy or kindness is the Hebrew word uh, kesed, which means God's unconditional grace and compassion, essentially. Hesed, or kesed, like many Hebrew words, doesn't translate precisely into English. So this is the challenge for this word, is we actually don't have an English equivalent to this idea. That's why it's translated in so many different ways. It means more than kindness. Sometimes it's translated as a loving kindness. Uh, hesed means giving oneself fully with love and compassion. So, so for example, this word loving kindness, uh, I was reading a couple of different articles that mentioned this. The word loving kindness was actually coined or invented to try to communicate the idea of hesed. Apparently, that was a term that was not our, in, in our, uh, in our uh, colloquial language until the first translation of the English Bible. And, and again, I apologize. I should have written this guy's name down. I don't remember his name. But when he was translating the Bible, when he came to this word, he came up with the idea of translating it as loving kindness because that's as close to the equivalent that he could come because it is kindness, but it's more than kindness. It's mercy, but it's more than mercy. But here's what I want you to see. This word is, doesn't describe action. It describes a way of being. So if doing justice is the action, Doing it with loving kindness is the way we're called to do it. Not just by an attitude adjustment, but because we've done the spiritual work for allowing loving kindness to be the core atmosphere of our identity. Therefore, when we go out, when we do mercy, when we do relationships, when we do justice, we're not doing it because we're angry. We're not doing it because we're trying to make a statement. We're not doing it because we're marching under the banner of some political affiliation. We are doing it because it is who we are. We have been transformed by the God of loving kindness. The God of loving kindness has taken up residence in your soul and so attached himself and made yourself one with him that his identity is now becoming and is your identity. So said is more than just the action. It's the spirit or the heart behind the action that we pursue. In fact, in Jewish theology, it is used not just of mankind's action, but it's also used as covenant language. In fact, I found one translation that said, what does the Lord require of you uh, but to do justice and to love covenant faithfulness? And because this word has to do with this is God's posture toward his people because he's made a covenant with his people, which means it is his posture toward his people because he is a covenant-keeping God, not because we ebb and flow in our behavior. So whether I am living in such a way to deserve his hesed or not, he nonetheless has that posture toward me, and that's how he relates to me. Now, again, it might be manifested as discipline, but it still comes from the heart of God, which is hesed. In Jewish theology, it's the use of God's love for the children of Israel because it's, a, it, it's connected to his covenant faithfulness. And in Jewish ethics, it's used for love or charity between people. 
has said in this latter sense of charity is considered a virtue on its own and also for its contribution to tikkun olam, which is to say repairing the world. In Jewish ethics, they understood to live said means we will live lives that contribute to the renewing or the repairing of the world. So it begins in here, and it works its way outward, not as an ideology, but as an action of compassion and loving kindness toward those outside of our circle so that we contribute to the repairing of the world that the Spirit is con constantly at work doing himself. Now again, I'll admit, my pronunciation, you have to understand, that's Oklahoma Hebrew, so that may or may not be completely accurate. But it's a beautiful idea, isn't it? It was not just said is beautiful on its own, but said is beautiful because of what it results in. And if the people of God live by said, then what will happen is the people of God will be the means through which God is repairing the world. Wouldn't that be good for evangelical PR in America? If we were known as the ones who in kindness were repairing the world? That's what I pray for. That's what I pray for this church. That's what I mean when I say my prayer for this church is that we're a church that the community would be sad to see go. I don't know if we're there yet or not. Maybe. We're probably there in some ways. We probably have a little more work to do. But that's the goal, the desire, that we will be a community of said, that we will be so committed to absorbing said from God for ourselves so that we can be healed, that we are then compelled to share that with others so that they can be healed as well. So that Christ Community Church in 50 years is known as a community that helped repair Southern Carter County. That, that's our prayer. That's our desire. That's our longing. And then, and then beyond, but we want to see that manifested locally. Has said, in fact, what we're told in the Old Testament is that the very foundation of God's government is has said. We're going to celebrate Christmas, and you're sometime during that time, you're going to hear about or sing that scripture from Isaiah that reminds us that to the increase of his government of peace, there will be no end. That government, the government of God that's here for the, for the benefit of the world is founded upon his said. Isaiah 16.5 says, a throne will be established in love. Could have translated that. A throne will be established in mercy. Or you could translate it, a throne will be established in kindness. A throne will be established in love, and, 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 the, and one will sit on it faithfully in the tent of David, judging and pursuing what is right, quick to execute justice. Now, the context in the Old Testament is a vision for the theocracy of Israel to live in such a way that this becomes the virtue of the entire nation. Now, we talked a little bit about that last week. Part of the challenges is that Israel's history, they were not faithful to that calling until Jesus came. Jesus is the Israelite who is faithful to the calling. That is why he is the one who fulfills all of the promises of the Old Covenant. He's the only one that was ever faithful to it. And so... So we, we, we take that idea, that vision, that 
in some ways in the Old Testament is a social vision. Now, careful now. Don't check out on me yet because this is not a sermon about politics just like last week wasn't. What I'm saying is in the context, this was a social vision. The government was supposed to act this way up in, but of course they asked for a king and the king never did this. A handful did, but mostly it was a disastrous story, Israel's kings. But the point is, as we move from looking at appreciating his story, which this reveals God's heart as being one of love, mercy, and loving kindness, and their story, which is their calling as the people of God to create a just society that was characterized by Mishpat and Hesed. And then we say, okay, well, what might that mean for our story? Well, what that means is, as the people of God, as that is our identity, then what we can see is that we are called to reflect this heart that's, that's encapsulated in these promises and in this vision of the Old Testament. So it has to begin, though, with me. The biggest hindrance to evangelism is Christians who are not resting in the love of Jesus. Because if you're not resting in the love of Jesus and you're being motivated by your woundedness or by your guilt or by legalism, you will grow to resent that and resentment will be the atmosphere of your evangelism which is why we don't want to do it. I guess I think somewhere in our heart we instinctively know that's really not a great thing to pass on to others. And so when evangelism was an obligation, it was weird for me. It was hard. I would read books on how to do it. I'm not kidding. I read books on how to evangelize, and I loved going to youth group telling people of all the people that I forced into the sinner's prayer that week and, and get claps and so forth. Um, but it, it, was, it, it was driven by obligation. And what I realized as I got older is that no one ever shares anything they love out of obligation. Have you ever had to say somebody, tell someone, tell me about that promotion that your child just got? Nope. Why? Because they're leading the way with that conversation. Um, if you want to understand what evangelism is, just ask an office fan hey tell me why you like the office now it has to be a true fan because the rest of the world we understand that that's a, a silly preoccupation before fan have you ever done that they'll talk and talk they'll go on about it what is your thing what is the thing that you discovered that you love sharing with other people and why do you love to share it you love to share it because it worked for you and brought either some value or benefit for your life, and so it's easy to share it with others. Well, I realized that's not really how I felt about my relationship with Christ. That's why all my evangelism had to be driven. But once I allowed that reality to touch my heart, then Jesus became a part of my conversation because Jesus was relevant to the day-to-day -day of my life. And so this is what we are then called to do. We have to receive that for ourselves. We have to believe it for ourselves. So once I do, then the love, kindness, and mercy that I receive from God is the love, kindness, and mercy that I am called to share with others. Therefore, the first order of business is to make certain that the God you worship when you close your eyes is not the God of man-made doctrine and religion, but it is the God 
whose beauty is revealed in the face of Jesus. And that you recognize that that loving kindness is true of you as well as the people that you're called to share it with. So three, uh, three ideas when it comes to the practice of kindness. Number one is this. I must trust that God's heart toward me is one of loving kindness. I must trust that God's heart toward me is one of loving kindness. The only God we will ever share with anyone else is the God we live with 24-7. And it's critically important that if you have been raised in an atmosphere or you've been treated in such a way that your woundedness and fear has given rise to toxic beliefs about who God is, that is motivating us on levels that we're often not even aware of, which is why it's critically important that we recognize this is the God revealed in the face of Jesus Christ and his posture toward me is one of loving kindness. I love what the psalmist says in Psalm 26, verse 3. For I have always been mindful of your unfailing love and have lived in reliance on your faithfulness. I have always been mindful of your unfailing love and I live in reliance on your faithfulness. So that's the question, isn't it? Is, is the, is, is, as the psalmist has confessed, is the unfailing love of God the thing that fills our mind? Do you feel yourself consciously relying on the faithfulness of God as you seek to navigate the complexities of life? For too many times, I was seduced by the, the idea of kind of a practical atheism where I had a God in my belief system, but my day-to-day -day was up to me. Well, God wants to be part of all of the flow of my life, every sphere of it. And so it begins with cultivating the discipline where I set the unfailing love of God in front of me constantly. I'm constantly returning to it. And the reason why? Because when I've, I, whenever I get out of bed immediately, whether it's in my thoughts or it's in the poor and uh, ungracious way I interpret what other people say to me, or... Maybe it's just because of the circumstances and event of my day. Everything starts pulling me away from the consciousness of God's unfailing love that surrounds me. And the more I cultivate a lifestyle where I keep that unfailing love in front of me, the easier it is then for me to share that out with others. That's the, that's the beauty of the revelation of the psalmist here. So I have to pursue practices that empower me to always be mindful of God's unfailing love and faithfulness toward me. How, this is why when we, when we write the liturgy, for example, and again, that's not the band-aid. That doesn't fix everything. Your temperament may be that the liturgy bores you. Uh, you read it, and you get nothing out of it. That's great. I mean, that's fine. Go, you, you can use another tool, but what I like about the liturgy, especially when I'm in a disciplined season where I do it morning, noon, and night, is that it creates these signposts along the way to remind me to be pulled back into consciously living from the revelation of God's unfailing love for me and for the people around me. And so I pursue those practices. I make those declarations. And I'm a big believer in that because oftentimes I have to make declarations so that I can speak to myself rather than listen to myself. 
Because if I'm just listening to myself, often the God that's presented to my mind is not patient, kind, and merciful. He's harsh and he's disappointed. He's kind of nice to everybody else around me, but he's really disappointed in me. Well, if that's the God I hold in my heart, I will not escape from projecting that energy and assumption out to everyone else around me. That's why the first important business of the spiritual life is to believe it for yourself and live from that place. And so I cultivate those. So, so sometimes when my mind is filled with darkness and depression and regret and, and uh, uh, harshness, Whatever reality there is to that, I bring it before the presence of God, but I do so knowing I'm bringing it before the presence of a God who is infinite in mercy, love, and compassion. And he can be trusted. He's safe for me to bring these dark parts of my soul into his presence because I've never been rejected by him for it. Rather, he makes a move towards me and begins to create healing in my heart that I then can share with others. But I have to own that for myself. So sometimes I just remind myself, God, I thank you. that I am in the presence of a God full of justice, mercy, wisdom, and compassion. And that who I am before you is defined by Jesus, not simply by my behavior. So I make declarations. I remember the moments of God's goodness toward me throughout my life, beginning with yesterday. I mean, just this afternoon, you can enter into this space so easily. Take a walk or find your favorite notebook, a special pen that you really enjoy writing with. I don't know. I'm guessing not everyone's nerds when it comes to writing utensils, but I am. I have pens that are reserved only for my use. And you just say, Holy Spirit, open my eyes. Because can't you feel it pressing in on you when all you feel is negativity? All you fear is, is self-pity and frustration. You get just, it becomes an atmosphere. You can walk out of that atmosphere by simply taking a walk, taking a drive, or opening up your journal and saying, God, show me where you were present yesterday. And then you just start to write, or you start to say out loud. You were present there with that kindness shown to me by my child. You were present there with that patience shown to me by my partner. You were present there. You'll be amazed what will come back to your mind that was not sitting and dwelling in your conscious mind. It was somewhere in your subconscious that you may or not even thought about it. But if you take that time, the Spirit is faithful to bring the mercy of God hidden away in your subconscious and bring it up to your conscious mind, and you're reminded, oh my goodness, things aren't as bad as I thought they were. I'm here alive. I, I can't, humanity, my species came alive because love breathed life into us, and we became a living soul because of that. That's a reference to Genesis. And so I have to bring myself back to that rem remembrance. One of the most challenging obstacles to our spiritual health is the belief that God's reconciled world is hostile, dangerous, or antagonistic toward us. My friends, this is a cosmos dripping with the love of God. This experiment is not God's failure. It is his creation, and it is very good. And yes, we're told a story of where we got lost in the wilderness and sin made us hard, but we're also told that Jesus came and rescued us from that plight. 
And when he did, he destroyed the power of death and the power of sin. And what we're told is in that moment, he has reconciled the entire cosmos back to God. We were talking this morning with Julie, and she reminded me of something I said a few weeks ago that is a thought that's really been stirring in my heart, which is if someone says, already when we were saved, I don't mention the 14 times I got saved in the evangelical church. I say it's around 33 AD, give or take. Because I was saved when the author of life conquered death. I was saved when the spirit of righteousness destroyed sin. I was saved that moment I was brought out of this realm and seated with him in heavenly places. Can I understand all the implication of what that means? Nope. But I can appreciate more of it now than I could 10 years ago. And I anticipate appreciating, appreciating it more in 10 days than I do today. Because I want to keep growing into and understanding myself from that reality. But it is a mistake. I, I, I know sometimes the dangers of the ego in a microphone. And I've been open and confessed that sometimes I've overstepped and I get into the flesh and I'm motivated by the things that frustrate me. And I regret that. I try to apologize for it. But as I thought about this, this is what frustrates me, though. Any theology that makes the church afraid to be near sinners makes me angry. Any, any theology that encourages believers and the redeemed of the Lord Jesus Christ to live in fear, just waiting for him to zap them out of here before it gets really bad, that makes me angry. Why? Because it is not the vision of our faith that we see outlined here in the scriptures. My friend, this is a world that's been redeemed by God. Now, they don't always know it, and therefore they don't always act like it, which is why we do justice, mission, and evangelism. That's why we do those things. But it's not to make the world a safe place or a redeemed place. That's already happened. That's what he did. He redeemed the cosmos. We are one with him. Go read your book of Colossians if you'd like to meditate on that more. God's creation, my friends, is good. God's new creation is very good. God's redeemed creation is his gift to his children. When you woke up this morning, just as when you woke up yesterday morning, and just as you woke up tomorrow morning, the Lord willing, you need to remember that the atmosphere in which you exist is God's loving kindness. The atmosphere in which you exist, the atmosphere in which you live and breathe and have your being is God's loving kindness. Let that reality sink in and heal the wounds in your heart. Let that reality sink in and be the place by which you summon the courage to face those darker sins that bring you shame. But it doesn't begin in the confrontation. It begins in the experience and acknowledgement that the very atmosphere in which I live is God's loving kindness. So I must trust that God's heart toward me is one of loving kindness. Secondly, I must allow my motive for repentance to move from fear to love. Oh, man, we're running out of time. 
I can't go off on too many soapboxes here. I am not discounting the scripture. I hope that what you've seen is we believe that the scripture can't be read as a, read as a flat authoritative document because the revelation of God that's taking place in scripture is progressive for the people as they're understanding it. And so I'm not arguing that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What I'm saying is this. The fear of the Lord may be the beginning of wisdom, but love that casts out fear is the end goal of wisdom. That's what God is taking us from. I get it. You may begin in fear because a sweaty evangelist said, you can either burn forever in hell or you can be in heaven forever with mom and dad. Child evangelism 101. I was in. Didn't take me long. My mama didn't raise an idiot. I go for door number two, please. So you may have started with fear. And then maybe in your maturity, you recognize, wait, there's actually lots of reward and promise for living a decent life. That there's lots of fruit and benefit that comes from living a life honoring to God. I don't deny that. So you pursue that. But then one day, you wake up. And fear is no longer a motive. And reward is no longer a motive. But love is the motive. And that day, my friends, is when your faith has reached its completion and finally liberated you so that you can be a liberator of others. But, but you got to give yourself time to get there. But we move from fear and hope, 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 fear of punishment, hope of reward, over to the motivation of love. And I have to allow my motive for repentance to move from fear to love. First John 4, 18, there is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not complete in love. But that's where God is taking every single one of us. The damage we're doing in our relationships comes from every part of our soul that's still living in fear. So we have to protect and defend and posture ourselves. But once we get free of that, we can just love from the purity of the joy of loving and the purity of the joy of the smile and our the smile of God in our heart that we begin to sense when we start to live in agreement with his nature through the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans 2.4 reminds us, or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? My friends, that will never be untrue, and we will never find something better than kindness to inspire repentance. Not judgment, not wrath, not harshness, None of those things. In fact, what those things tend to do is either make someone repent in behavior only or they just reject the message altogether. No, my friends, it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Not just initially when we come to faith, but in every moment of our lives. The reason to repent is not because God is rejecting you or disappointed, but because he's kind to you. And that is a more sustainable repentance. So I must trust that God's heart toward me is one of loving kindness. I must allow my motive for repentance to move from fear to love. And finally, I must practice kind acts every single opportunity that I'm given. 
And what's great about this is it's not esoteric. It's not complicated. We can start doing that the moment we interact with someone when we stand up from our seat this morning. In fact, there's a great picture of kindness uh, told in one of the wisdom parables of Jesus. We're going to read it real quick, and then we will come to a close. It'll be on the overhead, but we're going to look at Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. I'm sorry, we're going to pick it up at verse 30. Verse 30. Jesus replied with the story. This is after the lawyer asked him, and, and who exactly is my neighbor that I'm supposed to love? And Jesus replies with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed over to the other side of the road and passed by him and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Now, remember what Jesus is doing here is he's saying the two people of religious vocation were too busy working for God that they couldn't work with God because where God was was with the man who got attacked by bandits. They couldn't dwell with that presence of God. That was too distressful. The presence of God and the beauty of the temple was more their speed, which I get. I would rather have the presence of God from a good Hillsong Hillsong song than some person that I'm supposed to be helping in in the midst of their mess. So they pass on by. They're too busy. 33, then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, Take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Jesus asked. The man replied, The one who showed mercy. Then Jesus said, Yes, now go and do the same. Lord, give me restraint because we're at the end of the sermon. I can't just go off on all my little rabbit trails. But this story is amazing. There's a reason why it has entered into the collective consciousness of humanity and not just the consciousness of Christians throughout the years. For one thing that's really a challenge to evangelicals, is the two people that are condemned are the ones who had the right theology. And the person who is affirmed is the one who would have been believed by Israel at the time to be the person that had false theology. Two of them had good doctrine, but they didn't show mercy. The other one had questionable doctrine, but he showed mercy. Now, as an evangelical, I was taught that what you believe is the most important thing about you in terms of pleasing God. And Jesus tells a story that really rattles that idea. So as we close, just a few insights from the Good Samaritan that I would suggest that I am seeking to live for myself and I would share with you. Number one, own your responsibility to practice kindness. The priest and the Levite or the priest and temple assistant, they did not see it as their responsibility. And here was the problem. They had to be aware of kindness, but they viewed it as optional. And I do believe 
that we tend to think that way in our spirituality. Well, I may not be, I may not be that kind, but I'm at church every Sunday. I'm not the Christmas and Easter people, so that's got to count for something. I'm not saying stop coming to church. Clearly, the pandemic showed us what could happen when that happens. Please keep coming. You online, please come back. We're waiting for you. Your seats are likely still open. But what I am saying is, uh, is that, is that um, well, actually, I lost my train of thought. Oh, own it. Is that, is that con- kindness is not an add-on to the religious stuff that we do. No, kindness is the point. If your God isn't making you kinder, well, let me rephrase that. That's an offensive way of saying it. If my God is not making me kinder, then I'm doing something wrong. Because kindness isn't an option. We've got to own our responsibility to walk in kindness. Secondly, and this was a revelation I only got from this parable in the past two years. Create a rhythm of life that allows for, mar- allows for margin for kindness. Create a rhythm of life that allows for margin for kindness. You know what? The priest and the Levite may have legitimately had somewhere they needed to be, but they were condemned anyway. They may have even had somewhere they needed to be that had to do with their religious services that they did for a vocation, but they're not the hero of the story. So we have to allow some margin because you might say, I don't have the time, energy, or resources to practice kindness in any practical way. That may be true. So let's pray together. Let's talk together. Let's figure out how we might create margin in our life so we have something left over to take time to be helpful or we have resources uh, that we've created margin for so that we can actually be actively compassionate in someone else's life. Own your responsibility to practice kindness. Create a rhythm of life that allows for margin for kindness. Ask the Spirit to empower you to pay attention And then last but not least, lay down your need to be treated with kindness in return. That's the real heart about it. What kindness does is it reveals our heart. Is kindness an overflow of of the revelation of the kindness of God? Or do you do kindness out of your poverty so that people will be kind to you in return? That's not what we're talking about. It's kindness as an overflow of the heart. So it doesn't matter if anyone's kind to me in return. I'm still living from who I am. Would you all stand with me? Just before we take communion, I just want to pray for a moment. Lord, I pray that for every single one of us, that we would have a profound revelation of the gentleness and kindness of God that would so go so deep into who we are that it would transform our very understanding of ourselves. We pray that our self-concept would be rooted in the revelation of God in the face of Jesus. So, Lord, I pray for everyone in the room, whatever might be hindering the experience of that loving kindness, if it's a toxic belief if it's a wound from the past, if it's a, a, a spirit of cynicism because of disappointment in the past, Lord, I pray that you would break down the barriers to what those are and that you would allow every person here in this room or watching online to have the experience that I 
am the recipient. I am the object of God's loving kindness. We don't want to program loving kindness. We want to be loving kindness. And Spirit, you're the only one that can do that for us. So move in our hearts. Heal us. Deliver us. Set us free so that we can be empowered to go with you wherever you're touching the needs around us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're going to end by taking communion because we want to end our services celebrating the living Christ at the table that he has prepared for us. Because on the night that he was betrayed, he said, this, is my, this bread is my body given for you. And that wine that he served, he said, this is my blood of the new covenant shed for the forgiveness of sins. Take and eat, take and drink in remembrance of me. So this morning we end.